Welcome to the Natural Lifestyles Podcast with your hosts, James Marshall and Liam McRae, where we will be diving deep into the issues of modern masculinity, seduction, dating, lifestyle design, sexuality, psychedelics, you name it. This is the Natural Lifestyles Podcast. Who's feeling awesome? Who's feeling powerful? Who's feeling sexy? Who's got a sense, a niggling sense of self-doubt? Yeah. Who at the back of their mind thinks this weekend has been fucking great? Yeah. Yeah. But when I go home, I'll be alone and then maybe it won't work for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a mixture of all those things. Is that also happening? Yes. Yeah, which can be kind of confusing, right? You're like, fuck yeah. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I got this. I don't got this. (laughs) It's, uh, it would be understandable to assume that people who are successful, people who are confident, people who've made it, people who are bosses, always feel certain, or for the majority of the time, that they have a deep sense of certainty, of destiny, right? That there's this pathway that's almost laid out for them by the stars or by the gods or by fate that is driving them towards the inevitable goal, the inevitable actualization, their inevitable uh, triumph. And I think when you, I know for myself, when I was, you know, a young dude looking at people who had made it, That was the assumption that I made, okay? They look the part, okay? They seem to be presenting themselves from complete confidence, complete understanding of their role, that everything is going to work. And even if they had to go through difficult trials and tribulations, even if they had to collect skills uh, and resources and build themselves up, that they always had a sense that this was going to work. Has anyone ever thought that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah? Well, I'm here to tell you that in my experience, from my own personal journey of being a person that was not successful to being one that is now a scientist of successfulness, and I'm somebody who studies the art and the processes of success to institute into my life primarily, because this is the one I got, and so I may as well make it good, and then to present that out to the world and help people to do this, that that was not the case. For me and for every person that I know that has now achieved greatness or is living an exceptional life, that they never had this sense of like, I got this. Right from the beginning, it's all good. No matter what comes my way, yeah, I can deal with a bit of that or a bit of that. I can deal with this battle or this woman or this, uh, you know, government agency or whatever it is that I need to move through. I got this. This was not the case in my life or the people that I know that have had exceptional lives. In fact, quite the opposite. Having a a deep sense of doubt about yourself, I think is more closely aligned in characteristics to people that actually achieve greatness. That has been the thing that has been, the shadow side of my entire journey has been that other self, that voice in the background or at the forefront, depending on what was going on, how, how well I was writing the situation, that was saying things like, you, you can't do this. I'm not enough. And, most, and like the most terrifying one, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. That's been with me the whole time. And every, when I look back over the, the major points in my life where things 
jumped up a level, where I, where, I, where I had a breakthrough. Just preceding that was the most intense times of doubt. The first time that I got my little band together in Canberra, ACT. Who's the other guy that's from the ACT here? Woo! Woo! We like, generally, we like to keep that quiet. Uh, the first time I got up on stage and played the flute to an audience at the Gypsy Bar, it was, in 1998, I was terrified, fucking terrified. I had no idea if I'd be able to remember the songs and get through the thing. And it was a bit of a schmozzle, and like the saxophone player missed his cue, and we had this huge Hammond organ, like a 1960-something Hammond organ, that we dragged down, these things like weigh hundreds of kilos, dragged it down the stairs of this bar, and then we just couldn't get it up on the stage, so we just had to leave it. So it just got like halfway down and then just stayed there. Yeah, and so like the music was missing bits where the Hammond was supposed to be playing and then there was just the drum kit going. And John was on bass at that time actually and just sort of keeping the, the couple, you know, and he wasn't a great bass player. He's a great ukulele player, not such a great bass player in 1998. And it was a bit of a schmozzle, but that, you know, I got through it and I was like, fuck, being on stage, that's a thing, that was cool. And a couple of the chicks looked at me as well, so maybe he'll work on that. Maybe I'll get laid out of this eventually. I'll talk a bit about how being a musician doesn't get you laid as much as you would think later. Moving through to my first adventures overseas. When I was 18 and I finished school, myself and again John uh, went on another adventure where instead of going to university like we were supposed to do, decided to take some time off and travel around Asia. And you know, he and I went out to the deserts of the desert of Australia where they had irrigated a portion of the desert and grown an orange farm, which was a really bizarre scene. You just got this like dust, red dust, and then an orange orchard, and then dust. And uh, so we went out there with the salt of the earth, you know, these old fruit pickers who are just running from the law, or running from their ex misses or whatever out there, picking their life away and uh, picked fruit to try and save up money to go on this obscene adventure, like at 18 years old, to try and go to India. And uh, this was well before the internet. We didn't really know anything about it. We had a little guidebook. And like, I remember us arriving at the airport in Delhi and just stepping out into the heat and the insanity of India and just feeling this absolute terror. Like, fuck, this is insane. No one, no one can save us here. I don't know what I'm doing. And instantly hordes of guys started coming up and ripping you off in very creative ways with a big smile on their face. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we just got shredded through India in all sorts of fantastical journeys. I ended up getting kidnapped uh, by Rajasthani jewel smugglers. And they were so good that I didn't even know that I was kidnapped until the end. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. Right? But just, I mean, what they did is, I can't tell you the whole story. It's, it's a cool story, but... Could I? No, it's just not that relevant. Everyone's like, tell us. I'm like, yeah, but you won't learn anything. You'll just be like, and he told us that thing, and then he got kidnapped. Um, what they did do is they called my father and uh, said, Mr. Marshall, we have your son. We would like 50,000 US dollars deposited into this account, or you'll never see him again. Have a nice day. And uh, yeah, he did that. He didn't tell me about that for years. Anyway, this, you know, and the breakthroughs that I had whilst traveling in India were ones that totally blew me open. Right there, and it, I mean, it crushed me, ripped me apart. That that country at that time, being so unprepared, so naive, but being thrown out into the midst of that, not knowing what to do each day, how to navigate this bizarre country, uh, was something that gave me a, a resilience. When I came back to Australia, I was like, "This is pretty easy here, isn't it? Yeah, I can get through this." Yeah, and with women, oh, with women, 
I'm a great seducer. I'm really good at this. And I was really shit at this back in the day. And the day was long, the back in the day bit. That was a long bit. I didn't get good by preparing, by sitting in my room and studying and, you know, practicing the lines and visualizing me in front of the girl and then, you know, getting a VR simulation and getting things perfectly right uh, before I went out there and, and met the girl. Although that will be the case pretty soon. My, maybe I'll be irrelevant soon because you can just download the VR version of me. Oh, no, that's a terrible thought. <laughs> what will I do next? That's what, I have no idea what I would do next. Anyway, at the time, my, the big progress that I went through involved so many points where I stepped in front of a woman that I had no idea how to handle that situation. When I look back over my seduction career or the points where I made the breakthroughs, it was not the ones that, as I was saying yesterday or weeks ago, whenever that was when we were here, it seems time has distorted strangely, hasn't it? You're like, how many days have we been in this room? You know, it was not the seductions that went perfectly and smoothly where I clicked everything into place and said the right thing at the right time and touched her just so, and she went, ooh. And I was like, yep, that's my move. Uh, those were not the times when I learnt very much. One of, the, one of the great breakthrough seductions that I had was when I met Irina, the Russian, when I was totally broke, feeling awful about myself. I didn't know what I was doing in my life. You know, I, was un I, hadn't, I don't think I'd showered that day. I just sort of rocked up because you had to go into the unemployment office every two weeks and present your case of why they continue to give you free money. Thank you, Australia. And uh, what you'd do is just open the phone book and write down a number of pizza shops that you said you'd applied for jobs for, which you definitely didn't. And then go in and stand in line like a loser and, you, and just like to know, you're like, yep, this is the price for this free cash is to just go, all right, I sure am a loser right now in my life. <laughs> And then get to the front of the queue and give the form and the lady just goes, fucking scum, get the fuck out of here. And that was the, you know, that was the scenario and the feeling and my real experience at that time. In terms of value, everyone's, everyone's very concerned about what their value is. Am I high value or low value? I need to communicate my value to the girl. In societal terms and in my self-esteem, I had more or less no value at that time. And who, who's had situations or maybe feels like that uh, now or recently, where they feel like I'm not valuable enough, I don't have enough high enough value on the value scale. Yeah? Go on, everyone, come on. Who here feels like they're the most valuable man on the planet? They're like, it's all mine, the world is mine, I'm Scarface, before everything started going bad. <laughs> it's funny how rappers love that movie and, you know, the whole gangster culture. Like, but remember what happened at the end with Scarface? It didn't work so well. My big breakthrough with that kind of thing, because I have been battling with that all my life as well, trying to understand what it means to be valuable, uh, to have right value, to see if, where I exist in a, in a hierarchy, is to gradually over time come to understand that I am a valuable human being. I have inherent value. And that's not from just standing here and going, OK, I'll do nothing for my life and I'm, st I'm, st I'm, and I'm awesome. Of course, that's a progression. And I'll be talking about this uh, later in this speech when we, when we start looking at the first pillar of seductive success, which is in a game. It's a development, it's a process. But at some point, or multiple points, at varying degrees, you need to come to terms with the fact that you're a valuable human. And at some point, you're going to have to accept the cold, hard truth that some women will like you. I know, I know. It's not an easy thing to even get your head around sometimes. But at some point, you're going to have to accept that especially when she's like giving her phone number, especially when she's kissing you, and especially when she's sucking your dick, you're just going to have to accept it, that she wants to be there. And so many of us battle against that, even in the face of great evidence to the contrary. 
we do have inherent value. Of course, we can develop that, and we can develop things that make us more valuable in the eyes of the world. Uh, we can put on all sorts of shiny costumes and get cool cars and get uh, accolades in the external world that make people think that we're awesome. And that stuff's not bad to do, I don't think. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to investigate the, the planet and see what effect you can have on it. See how you can move from will, intent, and project that out into the world and manifest stuff. That's amazing that we can do that. But of course, so many people get lost in that, that just what I can manifest, all the shiny things I can manifest, is my value. At that point, when I saw Irina, she never told me her last name, ever, walk out of that unemployment office, and I went, that's the most devastatingly beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. I fucking got it. And I just started on the seduction thing. I'd been cold approaching for a little bit, a few months maybe at that point. And, and I was just there thinking to myself, oh, She's too, wait, wait, I'm not ready for that. And look at me, look at me. I was wearing this Afghan coat that I bought in Kashmir. And uh, it was this ragged kind of wizard's gown that when I bought it in India, I thought it made me look kind of spiritual and cool. And then when I got back to Australia and started wearing it around and people like sort of threw coins at me and stuff. <laughs> I realized that it wasn't actually that appropriate in this environment. But that was my coat, and I had my kung fu shoes on, my ripped jeans, and a stained t-shirt, and, and just feeling shit. And then I just went, are you a fucking bullshit artist, or are you a pickup artist? Because back then, being a pickup artist was what I wanted to be. And I went, I'm a pickup artist. <laughs> uh, funny boy. And then I ran down the street, and I jumped in front of her badly. You know, I didn't do the right stop. I got sort of half, and I went, hey, Chai, saw you with that back there. And I know that's bad. That's bad. And, but anyway, and she's just going, just reeling in horror and just giving all of the Russian looks of absolute disgust. But she didn't walk away. She just gave me all the looks. And I, anyway, look, can I... And I even like, took a deep breath, and I'll just meditate. And she's still going, what the fuck? <laughs> Can I walk with you for a minute? I'm busy, I'm a university. Yes, yes, I know, I can see you're busy. Um, can I walk with you for a minute, please? Okay. And so we began. For the next several years, that was the greatest seduction that I ever did. And it did take me, it is a complicated seduction, it's written all about in my book. Uh, I learned a huge degree from that girl and that situation and that time period when I was living in a sense of unworthiness, when I was a young guy trying to figure my shit out, which is, uh, <laughs> which is a time when you just don't know what that shit is. It's just the curse and the, and the amazingness of being a young guy trying to figure your life out. It takes us much longer, typically, than women to figure out what your purpose is. And our peak is different. I used to think, oh, your peak is because I was like rock stars die at 27. So that means your peak is like the year before that. That's, and you know, in 21 is like when you're the hottest and youngest or whatever. Like I thought that was the peak for a man. And as I was reaching that and then I got past that, I'm like, fuck, I'm done. It's all downhill from here. Yeah. I'm 20, and as I turned 28, I'm just like, all right, that's it. I'm an old man now. Um, now I recognize and I understand that the peak is way later and can go on for a long, long time. That beautiful sunset can stretch for decades if you do it right. And I'm in it now. Now it's definitely peaking. 
But those, all of those formative years, all of that struggle and doubt and trying to figure shit out, that was what led me to this point here. And all along the way was that shadow self going, no, no, no. Oh, don't do that, don't do it. Yeah, all right. Yeah, well, okay, you did that one, but the next one, that's certainly not going to work either. Right? So I want you guys to be aware that because this is not this, this I don't think this is the uh, experience for everybody. I do think that there are plenty of people who don't live without, who live without too much doubt in what they're doing and in themselves. But typically those people are not living exceptional lives. This is a time in history where you can more or less retreat from the world. You can create a fairly safe capsule or a small series of places that you maneuver through. Even in an insanely huge metropolis, you can live in a little toy town village if you want to. There were many times in history where you couldn't do that. You walked outside of your mud hut and it was on, right? It was raw. You had to put that doubt, you know, the, the doubt, the fear was not just like, am I good enough? It's like, am I going to survive this day? Am I going to be able to make enough food or gruel that I can dig out of the earth? Is the Lord going to come down and lop off my head? Do I have to get sent to war? You know, am I going to starve? Are the elements going to destroy me? Is that huge animal going to come and rip a piece out of me? We don't have to deal with that. We've removed ourselves from the food chain. We currently live in a very long extended period of global peace. There's wars popping off all over the place, but it's not like most periods in history where there's been some level of total war or great civilizations clashing against each other the whole fucking time. This is a, an, a second grand long belle epoch, which we are right in the middle of. Is it going to last? Any conspiracy theorists here? <laughs> Sasha. Sasha's always here. You know Sasha's one of my best friends, right? I, I'm allowed to make fr uh, jokes about him because I love him so much. Um, so any spies here, go back and report that to Sasha. So, okay, we don't have to worry about getting killed today, probably. Probably not going to happen. And so the, the choice is that we can remove ourselves from the doubt and existential fear or the fear of, like, actual destruction, and we can choose, make a series of choices that mean that our life is relatively safe and predictable. And the vast majority of people on this planet who have any choice at all, and so many of them don't have much choice, but the ones who do often choose the safe thing. And that's perfectly understandable. Again, throughout history, people who have succeeded and passed on their genes have been the fearful and the super brave. Right? The super brave are the ones that might get heaps of cool stuff, but are also more likely to die young. And then the ones who are fearful and timid and play things safe and you know, keep switching allegiances with whoever's in power and skirting around the, the corners... Okay, that's also a perfectly legitimate strategy for survival. But we, I mean, what is the purpose of life if we don't necessarily believe in some afterlife? Some of you may, I don't. So we have to look at, well, what is the meaning of this thing that we're doing right now in this strange sack of bones? On a biological imperative level, it is to replicate our genes, try and stick around long enough for that child to maybe outlive us and then wait around to die. That's it. And right now, I'm doing an awful job of fulfilling my biological imperative. I'm a complete failure in that. And I have a whole bunch of friends who are doing exceptionally well in this area and fucking hate their lives. They don't hate the children. They, they, they have that thing of like, well, you know, it's like, I mean, I love the child that did fuck my life up. But, uh, you know, yeah, yeah this, this is it. It's all there, you little shit. I love you. I don't even know how to hold children. I'm like, do you hold? No, you don't hold them around the neck, do you? <laughs> Don't do, don't do that. 
But of course, that's not really enough, is it? We, if that was enough, then people would just all move towards having children and they'd feel perfectly satisfied in that situation. But we have a search for meaning. We have a search for significance in our lives, a reason to be and a mission to move along, a progression to move through. And so those people who choose not to take that progression at all, they don't necessarily have like a deep sense of like, can I make it? Is it going to happen? Am I good enough for this? You know, will that next thing uh, eventuate? You know, will I be able to release my fucking amazing Aussie rap album or to, you know, get the girl of my dreams or to build my company or to live in another country, to learn, you know, to learn their customs and their ways, to, uh, you know, lead a group of men on some adventure. They don't necessarily have that. They have some other dark stuff, though. They have a lot of other shadow things. What are those shadows? Of the person who chooses complacency, safety, mediocrity. Regret. Oh, regret. I would say that's, that's probably the one that's going to dog them. Although, people are, pretty, people are pretty good at deluding themselves. Like, pr- people are pretty good at finding ways to justify their situation and, and uh, you know, rationalise it. So, the, they and we, all of us, do this to greater and lesser degrees, do all sorts of things to distract ourselves. And that's where we get ourselves embroiled in drugs and alcohol and gambling and TV and masturbation and gossip and, uh, you know, all of the other things that we do in order to distract ourselves from the fact that we're not really living in alignment with what our potential could be. But it creeps in, of course, in through the corners, and that's where people have that sense of regret. Yeah. Or of, uh, I'm really not doing what I... I'm really not living as much as I could be. To live, I mean, we all, we're all living organisms, but there's a massive spectrum of what it means to really be alive. And so much of that comes down to how aware you are of what you're doing right now. People who live up in their heads, in their imaginations, in their fears, their worries, their past, the projected future. And all of us do that, of course. That's part of the function of our mind. It does that. And partially, that is also an important thing to be able to do. Because sometimes we need to zone out from the intensity of life or the pain of life. But it's only one function of our mind. And if we get lost in that, then we're losing moments and minutes and weeks and months and suddenly, has anyone had a, s- a scenario where they've kind of woken up one morning and going, what the fuck did I do for the last month? Yeah. Maybe you've had that where you've felt that o- about a year. 20 years. 20 years. Okay. All right. Not, but not from today, right? No, two and a half years ago. Okay, excellent. Yep. This happens, right? Life passes quickly, especially when you're living in complacency. Especially when the, the prison that you're in is kind of soft and, you know, padded can be easy to sit in it. And you're encouraged to sit in it by the system, <laughs> by society, man, by the Illuminati, by whoever it is. And I don't, I don't think there is a grand global conspiracies of like, you know, puppeteers just going, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's so fun being evil, isn't it? Um, and I've hung out with one percenters. I've actually hung out with um, some royals and we and <laughs> it was with me and Sasha. Me and Sasha were together. And we met some uh, European royals, and we were hanging out. And Sasha just couldn't help it. He was just like, "I oh, man, tell me, are you a lizard?" <laughs> now I know you're supposed to say no, but like seriously, just fucking tell me. Come on. It's was, was like if I hold you and we just go and peel, will it come off and there'll be a lizard under there? <laughs> and he was he was pretty convincing in telling us that no, he was more or less a humanoid, and. Uh, <laughs> Didn't have a lot of emotions, but, uh, you know, to hang out, I've, 
I've hung out with a huge spectrum of people, and we have access to some of these, these you know, top echelon people, and they're still just people. I don't think that there's grand global conspiracies. There are certainly dozens and dozens or hundreds of micro-conspiracies. There are certainly the ways that societies shape their populations in order to keep shit moving, right? Germany, very efficient Germany. Just let me just say that word. <laughs> How is that just a joke in itself? <laughs> you guys get shit done. Yes, very efficiently. That's why our camera team is uh, Austrians. They're the cool Germans. Yeah? They're like the surfers of the German-speaking world. Right? Isn't that right, Dom? Look at him all chilled up the back there. But right now I know he's multitasking efficiently, get, getting six different things done. Whenever I'm stressed out and I like go to Dom or Alex, I'm like, guys, okay, there's this big thing. Right, we've already fixed it. Here, here's the system. You just follow it and you do as I told. Yes, sir, I will. Yes. Yeah. What? I didn't do anything. So, yeah, and, and not surprisingly... Uh, probably around 50% of our clients are Germans, right? Because, yeah, it's, it is that. It's like Germans, North, U North Europeans, uh, and then Americans, Australians. And finally, way down the list is Brits, actually. Interestingly, we're very close. We're similar. You know, we have a, an affinity, Australia and, and England. And uh, we get very few British clients. And I think that's because there's a sense of cynicism in the British psyche. Like, ah, like, oh, that'll never work. <laughs> Don't believe that. No. Whereas Americans are like, mentors are great. You should model people and then reach for the stars. <laughs> if he can do it, I can do it too. <laughs> Not always, but it's a good attitude to have. Yeah. And then the Germans are somewhere in between where they're more meticulous about things. If we follow the process, and perhaps we will get there. <laughs> But that's the thing is, I mean, why do Germans come to us? Because they have usually, I mean, all the guys I work with are successful, heaps of engineers. How many engineers in the room? Yep, that's a disproportionate number of engineers for any room on the planet. There should not be 50% of engineers in any room, but there is. All right? Because, okay, you followed the rules, you did things like you were told to, you've got a good job, you're making decent money, you've got the car, schaffen, schaffen, heuschen, bauen, is that right? All right, okay, that's enough. So it was Michael at the back, he's like, more German shocks, please. And I'm like, all right, that's for you, that'll do. But there's a sense of, okay, following, following what you're, the, the rules that you're given, that makes the society at large work, and it makes the units of, of uh, you know, couples and work, but it doesn't necessarily lead to individual happiness, individual satisfaction, right? So in my mind, you can choose to hear the call of your own personal hero's journey, or you can definitely choose to ignore it. And I don't really believe that there is manifest destiny. I don't think some people are born, or, or everyone is born, with like a mission that they will absolutely fulfill. Because the evidence seems to suggest that that's not the case. And that is the myth that is somehow sold. That is the American dream, or the Australian dream, like that idea of like, okay, you're, you're born, you do a bit of work, and you head in the, in the direction, and you will inevitably succeed. And I don't really think that is the case. The proof is all around. Plenty of people don't succeed on any metric. Even if they're surviving and they're creating the children and they have a roof over their heads, they're not happy with themselves, they're not satisfied, they don't have a sense of being actualized, of having stepped into power, stepped into their potential and brought it forth into the world and in, in through themselves. And there are also many people who have achieved incredible things on the outside and still are broken on the inside. 
So I don't think it's like you're destined for anything, really. But you can step onto a path where you create a line or a narrative that will lead you to some kind of destiny. And this is talked about in most cultures. There's, an, there's a story arc, the hero's journey. Everyone is familiar with this as a concept? Yeah. But it's useful to look at it, to, for us to kind of talk through it and see where do you fit into it. It's important for all of you to presume that you are on, on your own hero's journey. Some of you may have came here for this weekend thinking, okay, I do my thing, I got my life, I do my work, I do, I do more or less what's, what, I was the, what I was allocated to do, and I want to learn how to kind of sometimes just like kind of step out and grab a chick back in. Anyone see that? Nope. Cool. I'm good. That's, and that's, a, that's an attitude which is, I mean, it's understandable, and it's also possible, right? You can just follow the, the bland narrative of a life that has no particular trajectory, and you certainly you can learn skills that will make little pieces of that slightly better or more effective, or you'll be able to go, okay, I need to learn a bit of networking skills, so how do you network? You go to a networking event and you hand your card like this, or if it's in Asia, you go like this, and uh, you, know, you give a handshake and it's got to be just so, and then you look people in the eyes, and then you ask them three open-ended questions, and then uh, you say, let's do a deal, and that's networking. Cool, all right, I can learn that skill. Or, all right, I need to learn, I haven't had been laid in some months or years, or I haven't had, got a girlfriend, so I need to learn getting girlfriend skills. So I Google that, how to get a girlfriend. I come up with a whole bunch of shitty products. I buy those, that didn't work. Eventually I find my way to TNL. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then I learn that, okay, you go up and you do the approach and, you, and okay, now I've learned from Liam, you do split timing and then you say these words and you go through this process and you get her on a date. He'll be teaching you about how to do good dates later. And you go through that a few times and then you get a girl into bed and now you've got a girlfriend. Right, so these are things, this is a way to look at life as skill collection for certain needs and then when we have that, then we just put the skill aside and then we move on doing the normal stuff. That's all right. That's going to be a better life than not learning those skills. But that doesn't really, in my mind, tie into a grand narrative of you as a hero or as a proto-hero moving and evolving through your potential stages in life. It could, and it's close to it. Like it's, it's, it doesn't take too much to shift over into a more majestic narrative. In all of the stories in old mythology and myths, uh, mythology and myths is the same thing, I just said the word slightly differently. These, in these stories, there is always, that, like the hero doesn't start fully formed, does he? It's not like he's just like fucking awesome at the beginning, just like, except like uh, Sun Wukong, like monkey magic, who just bursts out of the stone. He's like, I'm a fucking immortal god. And then he's awesome all the way through. Uh, no, he still goes through evolution. He had to get stuck under a mountain for 500 years to learn patience. But the, you know, the character doesn't just start awesome and then continue through and at the end it's all, he gets the girl and the cash and everything and it's great. Or sometimes there is that character in a narrative, like I was on a plane uh, recently and I watched a shitty movie, Vin Diesel in Triple X Revisited, yeah, or Reduxed or whatever it was. And he's such a character where it's like, where he's just like tough and badass from the beginning and like just, you know, he's in situations where the gunfight's about to happen and there's 30 dudes and he's like telling each one of them which one he's going to shoot first and what order it's going to happen. He already knows how the gunfight's going to go down. You know, he walks into a room and then has an orgy with a chick, bunch of chicks for no apparent reason. Uh, you know, and at the end just kind of surfs off the side of a tank and fucking explosions and he's just like fucking badass. Right? 
Now, as much as we might absorb this kind of, consume this kind of narrative uh, and be like the explosions and the chicks and the guns and the muscles and go, yeah, that was cool, that's not a narrative that is going to follow you throughout your life, that is going to deeply compel you. That's going to be forgotten. However, I have just immortalised Vin Diesel in this speech, so you, got, you can thank me later, Vin. But, you know, this is not something that is going to guide your life, this kind of story arc. It's hyper-unrealistic, and so therefore is just pure fantasy. Whereas in pop culture, we have other story arcs, such as The Matrix or Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and there's dozens more, where the hero starts out with a huge sense of self-doubt, does not have the skills, does not know how to use the lightsaber, you know, hasn't got the chick, hasn't mastered his magical potential or any of these things. And yet he gets called into uh, an initiation, into a process where he's thrown out into the world, usually alone to start with, with a, with a sense of direction, a sense of achievement of where he wants to go and what he wants to do. Sometimes that is completely clouded and, and misunderstood for some portion of the journey as well, but has to go out and face various stages of trial, of battle, of seeking out mentors. That's what you guys are doing right now, whether you knew it or not. You didn't just come fly for a weekend to Budapest to sit there and, and absorb some information, I hope, because you can look at it that way. Oh, yeah, I went and did this weekend once and I learned some inter I, I listened to some interesting stuff. Some of it liked, some of it I didn't like, and there was a few jokes about Germans. And then, uh, and then I went home. And then I went back to my life. You could view it like that, or you could view it as part of a narrative with you as a central hero character who is on a particular point in your pathway where you are seeking out mentors, collaborators, colleagues, fellow warriors on the path in order to go and achieve and to evolve and to grow into next stages of your own life. And this is something that I've done a lot in my life and fairly early on I really started to conceptualise myself as this kind of bizarre, weird hero that was adventuring through the world, that was using the, the planet uh, as an adventure playground and was seeking and searching. And that doubt, that shadow was with me all the time, going, could, could be so much easier, buddy. Why don't you just go back, go back to Canberra? Go and get a job in the public service. Yeah. Or, or at other times, there was other good alternatives to being what I am now. I was studying Chinese medicine and I had a really hot girlfriend when I, just before I got into pickup and I was a dedicated Buddhist and martial artist and meditator. And that was also a clear pathway for me. That was where I was thinking, okay, what I'm going to do with my life is I'm going to become a healer and a, and a, a spiritual seeker, and then I'm going to transmit that to other people. And that, would, that path in, and fork in the road could have been also been an awesome narrative for me. I don't think that if I'd followed that down, I would have been uh, unsatisfied but it's not, not the one that I ended up choosing. And your narrative will reach various forks in the road where it can divide and go into very wild and different, wildly different stories. So again, I don't think there is a manifest destiny. I wasn't destined to be standing on this stage as a dating coach. Right? When I was a kid, thinking about what I wanted to do when I grew up, that was not where I was moving towards. In fact, my pathway was leading me in a very, very different direction. When I was 26, I'd been focusing in on martial arts, meditation, spirituality, a particular type of Buddhism. I'd been over to Shaolin Temple in China, which was, an, which was my, one of my big heroes' calls. I, uh, I went to China to study Chinese medicine, and after I finished the course, 
that we were doing an internship in a, in a hospital, I decided to beg for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. So what I did is I just told my teachers at the end of the course, because we were supposed to go back to Australia and continue the study year, and I said, uh, yeah, I'm not going back to Australia. I'm going to spend a few extra weeks in China. I've got to go and do something. And the teacher said, what? You can't just, what are you fucking talking about? You can't do that. And he did say, what are you fucking talking about? He's an Australian teacher, and they're allowed to say that. What are you fucking talking about, mate, dickhead? It was the acupuncture teacher. And I said, well, am I going to fail? Well, probably. Can I just make it up in some way? I'll come back and I'll do extra classes after. I know you've got another class running concurrently. I'll join in. I'll do whatever I need to do to catch up. But I have to do something. He's like, what? I'm like, I've got to, just got to go and see this place. What? The Great Wall? No, something more important. And so I just took this time, fuck the consequences, went to Shaolin Temple, where I was not invited. And I had been learning from masters in Australia who, who were disciples of the teacher's in the temple at that time, but you can't just rock up and jump the queue. But I did. I just rocked up, and I didn't intend to be instructed there. I just wanted to see this place, because it was important for me. This was my greatest passion at that time. Learning meditation and martial arts was the thing at that time in my life that had taken me from very shy, insecure, feeling powerless inside my own body, not having any sense of clarity of will, uh, of being able to stand up for myself, of being able to really understand the interface between mind, body, emotions. And as I developed this art form in me, it had exploded me into new types of power. And so this was my, this was my thing at that time. And I went to the temple to look around and through a series of magnificent events, which you could look at as some karmic fate or destiny, but it was me showing up that made the difference. And many, many times in my life, it has just been the showing up that has been the most profound thing. You guys all showed up. Lots of other people didn't. So, I mean, we will put out a lot of these videos on the internet over the next year, and some people will be like, oh, good, glad I didn't waste all that time and money going there. I can just sit here and watch the video. But that's not what, I mean, of course, the information is important, but this is a real experience. We're in this room right now. This is happening in real time. There's a transmission happening. There's a reflection coming back at me from all of you gentlemen in the room. And I'm adjusting and shifting what I'm saying to what it is that I'm feeling. It's for you. And there's all these other brothers on the path in here that you have now bumped into. And, and there will be interesting collaborations that come out of this, I guarantee it. Sometimes it's just one person that you meet that changes your entire fucking life. The fact that when I turned up at the, at the temple at that time, I just showed up, meant that, okay, these series of events could happen where I found myself in front of the master that I had was my kind of, you know, was my hero. Yeah? De Chao, this big Mongolian monk, I got to be in front of, and he asked me the question, what do you want? That's an important question to know the answer to when someone important asked you. And it was, I want to learn, I want to study. I want to study with you. And so he gave me a chance. Next morning at five in the morning, there I was at the temple with my idol, standing in a very uncomfortable stance, doing some very difficult meditation techniques, and then starting to progress faster and accelerate. So fast forward some years, I'd gone back and forward to the temple a couple of times, and I was considering, what is, what is, my, what is my manifest destiny? What is the thing that I want to manifest as a destiny? And to me, it was that I really wanted to investigate my interior world to a, an exceptional degree. I was not happy with my psyche. I was not happy with the way I felt about myself. And as I'd learnt meditation, that had shifted things. I'd learned how to come to more peace with myself. I'd learned to understand 
the processes of my mind to recognize that my thoughts were not me. And that's a very profound realization if, if and when you get to that. And we, we can get to it and then we can forget it many times, but to get into the, to a more permanent state where you recognize all of this stuff that's bubbling around inside my brain, that's not the totality of me. That's some manifestations of all sorts of processes happening inside me. It's one aspect of the mind, but it is not me. And therefore, when you can step back from it, you can be really free from the negative narratives or from the limited narratives inside your own brain. And so I'd reached a point where I was like, okay, this is, this is the juice for me. I need to push this as far as possible. I'm willing to become a monk, an ascetic monk, to step off the path of being in the Western world and being involved in all of this material nonsense. I was like, okay, I'm going to go... I'm going to go and live in China. That was my plan. I'm going to go back to that place and I'm going to go off into the mountains and I'm going to take proper discipleship and I'm going to become a weird, shaved-headed, big-nosed monk. That was my plan. And so I thought, okay, well, what, am I, what do I need to do? I was working as a massage therapist at the time, so I was like, okay, I'll save up money doing massage. I'll do as much of that as I can. Maybe it'll take me six months or a year maybe to get enough funds together to finance me to go over there and stay for some years at least. Problem was, though, that although this was a clear, clear drive for me, I was also a very horny young man, and I had this other direction pulling at me, which was saying, before I do that stuff, become a celibate kung fu monk, I really feel like I need to fuck a lot more girls. And not just the girls I've been hanging out with usually. Thanks so much for listening to the Natural Lifestyles Podcast. Check us out on YouTube at The Natural TV. See you on the next episode.